With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Wednesday, the 12th of May, and we're brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. That's a virtual privacy network. allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix, keep your data safe. LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, congratulations to Manchester City, the 2021 Premier League champions, crowned last night without having to play after United rolled over, played the reserves, and lost 2-1 at home to Leicester City. City deserved to be champions They have been the best team across the season. There can be no doubt about that. They had that incredible unbeaten run. They've played fantastic football in spells. And they have the best players. I mean, you you can't argue with the fact that they have the best players. Um, United gave up. Their chances of winning the title were obviously minimal. 1% at most. But there was still a chance... But Oli Gunnar Solskjaer decided to throw last night's game away, played an entirely changed team from the team that had played Aston Villa. Ten changes, I think. Mason Greenwood was the only player that started both games. He played De Gea, Brandon Williams, Eric Bailly, Twanzebi, Alex Tellez, Donny van der Beek, Nemanja Matic, Ahmed Diallo, Juan Mata, Ilanga and Greenwood up front. Leicester went full strength. I was a little bit surprised at how strong the Leicester team was, given they have the FA Cup final. The only player they rested was um, Ricardo Pereira. They've got the FA Cup final coming up, but this was the perfect boost for them ahead of that. This will give them confidence going into that FA Cup final. It also gives them that cushion in the Premier League. Uh, Luke Thomas had put Leicester 1-0 up. Really, really good left-footed volley from a Yuri Thielemans cross into the top corner. Gave De Gea no chance. Mason Greenwood made it one, uh, 1-1 five minutes later. Really good finish. Greenwood has massively turned his season around. Poured through the first half of the season. Struggling to deal with the expectations. Last season, obviously, he was phenomenal. His conversion percentage last year was ridiculous. It was unsustainable. 
and this season, as a 19-year-old, bound to have a drop-off, did have a drop-off, but has bounced back and has been brilliant the last 10, 15 games. Uh, scoring goals, creating chances, doing all the things you want a player of his ilk to do. Uh, led the line really well last night, gave Sayonchu and Fafana problems. He was one of the bright spots for United. Ahmed Diallo, another. What a talent he looks to be. United really do have in him, Greenwood, Rashford, and Shola Shortire, who's meant to be phenomenal. Those four, that could be United's future in attack. And if it is, then at, at least three of them are scary. Rashford, Greenwood, and Diallo. Um, Sayonchu won the game with a header on the 66th minute from a corner. Really powerful header. He wanted it more than anybody else. What was strange to me is that Oli brought on Cavani, Rashford, and Bruno Fernandes. If you're resting them, don't play them at all. They get no recovery time now. They play this. It's the same as if they'd played 60, 70 minutes to give them 20, 25, because they'll have had to go through the entire build-up for the match, the warm-up, the warm-down, playing the game, obviously. And then, of course, they, they lose a recovery day. So... Strange decision by Ollie to do that. Maybe he was trying to make it look like they actually cared, but it was quite clear he didn't. Uh, Liverpool fans were annoyed, rightly so, but Liverpool have nobody to blame, only themselves. West Ham fans have more of a reason to be annoyed, in my view. They're obviously one point, uh, one position back from, from the top four, uh, sitting in fifth. The issue for West Ham is that they've bottled the last two games, well, sorry, three of their last four games. Um, you can put aside the defeat to Chelsea, that's fine. But the defeat to Newcastle and the defeat to Everton, they're very, very disappointing. Especially the Newcastle one. That's a game they should have won, but they fell behind so early. Um, West Ham, at the start of the season, obviously had no ideas of European football. But they've gotten themselves to a position where they, they did think they had a chance. And they have three games coming up that are favourable. And if Leicester had lost last night, they may well have looked at it and thought, right, well, if, if they lose to Chelsea, which is likely, and we win our last three games, and it doesn't matter what they do against Spurs, we'll end up on 67. And the most they can get is 66. Now, they're already on 66 now because of United's actions last night. So for West Ham, they would need Leicester to lose both of the last games, which isn't outside the realms of possibility. And West Ham would need to win their last three. For Liverpool, they need to win their last four and hope that Leicester lose at least one of their games. Then they can overtake them on goal difference. If Leicester were to only draw against Tottenham or Chelsea, then it is possible that Liverpool could get away with, with dropping points in one game with, with a draw against United, for example. But I think it's over for Liverpool. It's probably over for West Ham. And Leicester will be in the Champions League next season, is what it looks like. You'd still feel confident that Chelsea will get there. And United are obviously confirmed. City now confirmed as champions. 80 points. They'll have a maximum of 89 if they win their last three. Their last three are Newcastle away, Brighton away, and Everton at home. 
three games you'd expect them to win. But 89 points is quite low for a champion in, in this era um, where the points totals have just been going up and up. So it does kind of show what a depressed league it's been this year. Even City, as league champions, have lost five times. United have lost five times. Chelsea have lost seven. Liverpool have lost nine. And everybody else has lost more than ten. Only City have won more than 20 games. Then you've got United and Leicester on 20. City of 25. Chelsea on 18. West Ham on 17. A bunch on 16. There's been... Like, you look at last season, for example, Liverpool won 32 games. Then he lost three. Liverpool had the title wrapped up by the time football stopped because of COVID. If they'd lost every game after that, they would still have been champions. They ended up on 99 points. The year before, City won it with 98, won 32 games. Liverpool won 30. The year before that, United in second won 25. Now, this season, United's maximum that they can win is 23. Tottenham won 23, finishing third that year on 77 points. United finished second on 81. United this season can only get to 79. City topped the league with 100 points. The season before that, again, Chelsea win the, the title with... 93, 30 wins. Again, City can't get to 30 wins this season. So, you know, you really have to go back to that Leicester season, which was a bad season overall. The, the, uh, the quality in the Premier League was very poor. This season reminds me sort of, of that 14-15 season where Chelsea won the title under Mourinho, City were second, Arsenal were third. And I think the points totals from that season, 87 won it. I think City will end up on about 87 this season. I think you could see them dro dropping points in one game. Um, Man City finished second that season, 79 points. Again, if United win out, they'll end up on 79. Doesn't look likely that they will get to 79, but, you know, that that season is the one that reminds me of this season. But this has been a weird season. No fans. All the COVID protocols. The condensed schedule. I think that gives City massive credit for this season. To do it with all that's been going on in a, comp a compressed season without fans. Now, City's style of football, I think, is suited to not having fans because of how, they're, how they set up, how they play. I don't think fans make it... A, a, a difference for them one way or another. But um, I do think you have to give them credit. And I know there's going to be an asterisk beside everything for this season, but at the same time, credit to City. They have been the lone good team in the league this year. United have been decent. Leicester have been decent. Chelsea have been decent since Tuchel took over. West Ham have overperformed. But below that, I mean, Liverpool are massively disappointed with this season. So were Tottenham, so were Everton, so were Arsenal. So six through nine will all be disappointed. I think if you look at the bottom half, Wolves will be disappointed, Burnley will be disappointed, Newcastle and Brighton, plus the three relegated teams, will all be disappointed. 
the other game last night, Southampton 3, Crystal Palace 1, Danny Ings with 2, and Che Adams with the 3rd. Christian Benteke had put Palace 1 up. Good goal, uh, well worked. Got a little bit lucky with, with one of the touches that kind of deflected back into his path. But from there, it was largely all Southampton. Palace did get a penalty, which Fraser Forster saved from Milojojevic. But Southampton were good value for the win. It was nice to see Southampton playing with a bit of confidence. Nice to see them looking more like themselves. Uh, Palace looked very much like a team that know that they're safe, know their season's over, and don't have a lot to worry about. So on they go. A lot of their players aren't committed to the club beyond this season. The manager's not committed to the club beyond this season. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Palace stayed 13th. Southampton rise to 14th. Um, ideally, they'd have wanted a top-half finish. That's now not possible for them. The max they can finish with would be 49, which is probably good enough for 11th, all things considered. No, sorry, 12th. 12th, all things considered. So, you know. They can experiment a little bit. Ralph can see what he has in the squad. He can play around. The results won't really matter. He's going to be there next season unless he chooses to leave. He can now figure out what players he wants to have. So the only thing left to play for is third and fourth. First is done. Second is done. Third and fourth still technically open, but... I mean, it doesn't look likely that anyone's going to overhaul Leicester or Chelsea. West Ham and Liverpool are the only ones that would have a real chance to do it. Um, Tottenham can only overhaul Chelsea, and they would require Chelsea to lose every game the rest of the way while they win every game the rest of the way. Everton can qualify still if they win all their games, but they would need, again, Chelsea to collapse and or Leicester to collapse. It doesn't look likely for them. In all likelihood, it's going to be Leicester and Chelsea. But Liverpool and, and West Ham still have to play out the season. The bottom three are confirmed. We've known that since yesterday. Sheffield United gone, West Brom gone, Fulham gone. I watched a clip on YouTube of the Monday Night Football discussion between Messrs Neville and Carragher. And it became clear to me that Neville hasn't watched Fulham all season long. Neither of them had a word of criticism against Scott Parker. Not one word of criticism against Parker, despite the terrible job he's done. Despite the fact that he had an exceptionally talented squad that should easily have been mid-table. And yet he's managed to take them down. Not one word of criticism. Neville showed he hadn't watched them when talking about their weaknesses. So they put a graphic up on Sky, which showed you know the rank of... Um, Fulham in the Premier League. So in terms of wins, they've won five games. That's the joint lowest with West Brom and Sheffield United. So that's that's a disgrace. Uh, goals scored 25, second worst in the league. Only Sheffield United have been worse. Uh, XG conversion, six, or sorry, shot conversion, uh, 6%. That's worst in the league. Again, you've got Josh Maggi, you've got Mitrovic. You've got Cavaliero, you've got D, D, uh, Bobby D, D Cordova Reed, you've got Adam Ola Luckman. That's not good enough. That's a lack of coaching. Um, XG performance, they're minus 13.1 on their XG. 
That's 19th in the league. So again, that's that's atrocious. Uh, goals conceded 47. That's quite good. That's 12th in the league. But Neville said, well, you can see that they concede goals from set pieces. They had the, the best set piece defense in the league. They only conceded three. If he'd bothered watching them all season, he'd have known that they're excellent at defending set pieces. Anderson, Tosin and Ariola, that defensive triangle, have been brilliant at defending set pieces. Fulham's problem hasn't been defensively this year. Neville said if you're bad in both boxes, Fulham aren't bad in their own box. They're not bad at all defensively. They're very comfortably mid-table. They've got a mid-table defence. I think they've got a top eight midfield when Zambo and Lamina play there. And that attack should be far better than 19th in the league. Uh, shots, shots faced per game, 11.3. That's ninth in the league. So again, that's respectable. And then the big problem, points gained from behind, 2, 20th. That again falls on the manager. That again shows a lack of ability to adapt during games. A lack of in-game management. Not one word of criticism came from those two. Because they played with them. For England, they're never going to criticise one of their pals. And that's one of the issues with punditry. Is that it's an old boys club. So you've got all these guys that played together, played against each other. They've all been friendly for years. And none of them will say a bad word about each other. No criticism at all. Carragher tried to compare this season's Fulham to last season's Norwich. As if the style of play was similar, which it wasn't at all. As if Daniel Farka and Scott Parker are comparable, which they're not at all. Norwich went down last season because they didn't back Farka at all in the market. They came up with their team. Their team was their team. And they just went with it. They played the exact same style of football all season long. And unfortunately, they just didn't have enough quality. They had quality in some areas. They had a really good right back in Max Ahrens, a good centre back in Ben Godfrey, a good left back in Jamal Lewis. They had two good attacking midfielders. In Emmy Buendia and Todd Cantwell, they had a somewhat reliable goal scorer in Timo Puki, but that was it. They had an average goalkeeper, a below-average partner for Godfrey, below-average centre midfielders. They really could have done with someone wide on the right, with Buendia playing as a ten. Instead, they played played Buendia on the right quite a bit and played, you know, Hernandez or Ari, is Ariel Hernandez? Is that his name? He played as a ten quite a bit. And they had no other goal scorer other than Pukki. That's why Norwich went down. Nor- but Norwich had a, dis- like a defined way of playing. Norwich had quality players. Norwich had a manager who was good tactically. Fulham have far better squad than Norwich do. Far better squad. But they were managed by a buffoon. And they don't have a defined style of play. Defensively, they have a defined way of playing. Which is largely down to the individuals. 
it's not down to the manager. Because we saw Parker's team defend before Anderson and Tolson arrived, and it was totally different. We saw them defend last season, and it was the same thing we saw at the start of this season. We saw them defend at the end of the 18-19 season when they got relegated and Parker oversaw the last, whatever it was, eight games. And they defended the same way as they did at the start of this season. You don't change your entire defensive structure as a manager just because you get different players in. But he did because the players sort of made him. Parker's done a shocking job. This I've seen people on social media try and defend him. Oh, all things considered, he's done a good job. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. They're gone down. They've been relegated with a team that should have finished mid-table. There is no argument to be made that Scott Parker has been, has done a good job. There's no argument to be made that Scott Parker is a good manager. There's no argument to be made that he should be given the Tottenham job or any other job. There's no real argument that Fulham should keep him either, but apparently they're going to. Now, Mitrovic apparently wants out because he doesn't want to play for Parker anymore. Mitrovic was probably the best player in the championship last season. He was certainly in the top three. And you got absolutely nothing out of him this season. Nothing at all. That, to me, again, is on the manager. Ariel Hernandez is that guy's name. Um... Yeah, Norwich went down because other than Timo Pukki scoring 11, nobody else scored more than six. That was Todd Cantwell. And nobody else in their entire team scored more than one. That's why Norwich went down. But that wasn't a lack of planning. That wasn't bad luck. That was a lack of money spent. That was a lack of quality. Fulham absolutely had the quality. There's no question Fulham had the quality. Mitrovic, Maja, Luckman, Cavalero, Reed, Loftus Cheek. There's no question Fulham had the quality going forward. It's on the manager. And not one word of criticism, while both openly admitting without admitting that they hadn't watched them play. Other than the games that are on Sky, they're not watching them play. And yet, we're meant to listen to them when they talk about the entire league. We're meant to actually take stock of what they say when they pick their team of the year with lads that have played less than half the season, with lads that were poor for months. It just mind-blowing stuff. Mind-blowing stuff. Um, There are two games tonight. Chelsea, is it one game tonight or two games tonight? It's one game tonight. There is one game tonight. Chelsea take on Arsenal tonight. Uh, That is at Stamford Bridge. That That is a tricky game for Chelsea. If you remember back to December, Arsenal had been dreadful and Arteta looked like he was on the verge of getting the sack. Chelsea went to the Emirates. Arsenal changed their shape, finally played a 4-2-3-1 rather than 3-4-3 or 4-3-3. Brought Smith-Rowe into the team and him and Saka transformed the team. Arsenal won, went on a little mini-run. That saved Arteta's job. He has since shown once again that he, the, job isn't, he's, the job is too big for him. He's just not good enough for the job. Um, but Arsenal could be confident tonight. And Chelsea, 
again, cup final coming up. Maybe they'll rest a few. Could see Billy Gilmore starting midfield, which is good because he's a talented player and it's good to see him get games. Um, we'll probably see him rotate the wing backs. Tuchel likes to do that, keep them fresh. He'll probably change the attack. He might even play Kepa. Depending on who's going to play at the weekend, he might play Kepa tonight and Mendy at the weekend. But this will be a good game of football, I think. I'm looking forward to watching Arsenal because I like watching Saka and Smith-Rowe. I think they're two of the most talented young players in the country. Uh, I'm excited to see what they'll be as part of England's future. And actually, there's, I've got something to talk about with that today. But, um, yeah, I think this is going to be a good, good game of football. An 8-15 kickoff should be fun. It should be fun. It's the only game tonight. There's two tomorrow. Um, but, yeah, it's the only game tonight. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into the news and the gossip. Right, welcome back. So, uh, in terms of news, we have some. Obviously, City being crown champions is the biggest news. And again, congratulations to them. I really hope they go on and win the Champions League. I, I, I would rather see them win the Champions League than Chelsea. Chelsea have already won it. Their fans have seen their team win it. City's fans have never seen their team win the Champions League. I, I think it'd be nice to see. A lot of people criticised the City fan base and called them plastics and whatever. You have to remember, when City got relegated into the what is now the Championship and what is now League One, they were still packing Main Road. It was full. Week after week after week, they were packing Main Road. There's a proper hardcore fan base there. Yes, they have gained some Johnny-come-lately glory hunters. All clubs that have success do. When Manchester United started winning titles in the 90s, their fan base exploded. They were getting fans from all over the world. When Chelsea got Roman Mourinho, all the money, all the good players, and started winning, their fan base took off. When Liverpool won the Champions League in Istanbul, their fan base went massive. Arsenal experienced similar things under Wenger when they started winning the double a couple of times. So it is natural when a club has success, their fan base will swell. But it must be remembered that City do have this hardcore group of fans that used to go every single week to Main Road. Didn't matter what division they were in, how bad the football was, how bad the team was, whatever. City have a proper group of fans that deserve success. And you can't begrudge those people the success that they've had. And you can make your arguments about how the success came about. And we saw multiple journalists yesterday take little cheap digs at them. Success is success. Where was your outrage when Chelsea were doing the same? Where was your outrage when Alex Ferguson was outspending everybody? You, you didn't have any. You weren't outraged when Blackburn won the league title because Jack Walker bankrolled them. You weren't back outraged then. Don't be outraged now just because City have the most resources. Yes, there are things to be outraged about. Yes, you could look at the, the money washing, the financial doping, and you can be outraged at that. You can look at the fact that they are currently facing another investigation for financial fair play trying to reach court settlements and stuff like that. You can look at that and you can be annoyed, but the fact of the matter is having all the money in the world means nothing 
if you don't put the right players on the pitch, don't put the right manager in the dugout, and don't create the right atmosphere for, for success. Look at Barcelona, look at Real Madrid, look at the money they have spent. And look where they find themselves. Barcelona drew last night. They're probably now out of the title picture in Spain. Ronald Koeman's most likely going to be out of a job at the end of the season. Having all the money doesn't matter. Benfica spent a fortune in the summer, blew up their wage bill, brought in a bunch of big-name experienced players. Sporting Club de Portugal were crowned league champions last night in Portugal. So congrats to them. Massive achievement for Sporting. First title, I think, in 19 years. And when you consider that two years ago, the fans were storming the training ground. And multiple players broke their contracts to leave. Rui Patricio, Rafael Liao, William Carvalho. Bruno Fernandes was on the verge of doing the same thing. They talked him round. They ended up selling him for $56 million or whatever United paid for him. And they built a title-winning team with that money. With that money and with their academy. They bought Bruno for, I think, $7 million. Made $50 million profit on him. Put some of it back into the team, brought through academy players, and they have a fantastic team. Unbeaten, best defensive record, tremendous season. Tremendous season. Congrats to Sporting. And like I say, congrats to City because it doesn't matter how you get there. You got there, you won the title. Simple as. Um, the Football League has confirmed it's won its appeal to find Derby County in breach of financial fair play rules, which means that despite the fact that Derby stayed up at the weekend, they could yet be relegated. An independent panel will be put together to decide their punishment, but it is still possible that Derby County will be relegated. Now, my assumption would be that would mean Rotherham stay in the championship, but I know Wickham have apparently lodged a lawsuit against Derby. Sheffield United, I mean, they broke the rules as well. They had a points deduction, which was then reduced on appeal. I don't know if they'd be the ones. I assume it would be Rotherham. More bad news for Derby is that Richard Kyo, who was sacked by the club having been involved in the drink driving incident and uh, suffering damage to his leg, he's won a compensation against the club uh, for over £2 million. So... They now have to pay that as well, uh, which is just, it, the hits keep on rolling. There's a guy, Eric Alonso, who's meant to be buying the club, can't provide any proof of funds, put up a picture of his house, showing what a fancy house he has. It turns out it's a house off TikTok. So, some, some guy <laughs> on TikTok has this fancy house, and Eric Alonso was trying to pass it off as his own. Uh, it looks like Derby have once again been hoodwinked by a charlatan. Um, someone please buy Derby County. Someone please buy Derby County and save that club from itself. Uh, Americ Laporte has been granted Spanish nationality, opening the door for a call-up to the Spain squad at this summer's Euros. He is French by birth, played at underage level, but he's never been capped at senior level, which... It is ridiculous because he he is better than many centre-backs that have played for France over the last few years. But it does show the depth that at this point he's not going to get capped. 
it shows the depth France have. So he was eight years at Bilbao uh, in their youth setup. His grandparents are also from the Basque country. So he is eligible to play for Spain. And he'd be a great addition to the Spanish squad. The only issue is their best centre-back right now is Pau Torres of Villarreal, who's a left-footed, left-side centre-back. Laporte is a left-footed, left-side centre-back. Now, I would say Laporte is better than Torres, but can they play together? One of them will have to move, or they'll have to play a back three. They don't have a particularly good right-side centre-back. Their first choice is Ramos, who's a train wreck. Um, they could potentially go Unai Nunes of Bilbao, but he hasn't really kicked on. The big prospect for them was Jorge Mir, but he hasn't he hasn't developed at all since moving to Clone. Inigo Martinez is probably the other best centre-back they have. He's also left-footed, left-side centre-back. So they'll need to figure something out there. Back three might be the way forward. You could probably play Nacho on the right of the back three. Laporte on the left, Torres in the middle. That would probably be the best fit. Um, Jack Grealish looks set to return for Aston Villa on Thursday night against Everton. Now, the report is that he is uh, he's slated to start the game. He's missed three months. I think it would be ridiculous to start him when he's missed three months and risk re-injury. Given he's already broken down a couple of times on this comeback and had setbacks, it would be just bizarre to start him in this game. Have him come off the bench. You've got nothing to play for. Give him 30 minutes, play him in the next game. Uh, Callum Wilson will not play again this season after suffering yet another hamstring injury. I think that's the third one or fourth one this season. He's been really good for Newcastle. He was... When he was fit and they had St. Maximum and Almiron around him, he was really, really good. 12 goals in the league in 26 games. It's a great return considering the, the type of football that they were playing and you know Steve Bruce tax. Uh, not ideal. Gigi Buffon will leave Juventus at the end of the season. His contract expires in June. As, and he has announced he will not be renewing it. He did not and uh, did not announce his retirement. So it looks like he will go on and play somewhere else. Now, I've seen some people suggest Parma. I, I think that would be perfect. They've just been relegated to Serie B. So I think if he could go there and help them come back up, be part of the rebuild, I think that would be great. He could go to play in America. He could go anywhere. Um, it all depends on what he wants to do. If he still still feels fit enough to play, there'll be clubs who'll want him. No question. He's he's Gigi Buffon. He's arguably the greatest goalkeeper of all time. So I, I can see why he would want to leave Juventus. But, you know, I, I don't think he needs to retire. If he's happy to be third or fourth choice, uh, sorry, second or third choice goalkeeper, why not keep playing? If you're fit enough, keep playing. Um... David Ornstein, uh, who reported, obviously, the other day that Patrick Bamford had very quietly under the radar renewed his contract with Leeds. He's also reported that there has been a switch in this year's PFA Player of the Years, Player of the Year awards. Uh, It's going to be held online, but the ballot was extended. Some people apparently didn't realize it had been extended. 
and thought they couldn't vote. Lots of nonsense. Lots of nonsense. Players of the year. Player of the year is going to be an interesting one this season. It should go to Gundogan, I think. I would have no argument with Kane, no argument with Bruno. I would have a big argument with Ruben Diaz. You can't be the third best player in your own team and win player of the year. Last season we saw it with the football writers. The sixth best player at Liverpool was voted football writers player of the year. That can't be allowed to happen again. It's farcical. Um, West Ham will make a bid to sign Tammy Abraham this summer. Chelsea want 40 million for him. I don't think West Ham will have 40 million. And the report says that they would attempt to bring him in on loan. I can't see Chelsea allowing that. I really can't see Chelsea allowing that. I think Aston Villa is the one that makes the most sense for him. I think him and Ollie Watkins as a two with Grealish behind them. That front three, I think, will be very, very good. He's also linked with Leicester. They're not going to pay that type of money. And um, and Newcastle. There's not a hope Ashley's putting his hand in his pocket to that extent. I think it's time for Tammy to leave. What's he got? 12 months left in his deal. So, I mean, that 40 million is just speculation. Chelsea might take 25, considering considering he's got 12 months left. If if I think it is 12 months. Um Chelsea might have might have to take 25, which is still a good price for him. I mean, it's a good price for a player that you're not playing who your manager doesn't seem to have any interest in. Actually, he's got 2 years left in his deal, so to be fair, they can hold off on on what they and get what they want. But again, they don't want him. He Tuchel hasn't really given him a look. He's played 230 minutes since Tuchel took over. Uh, he needs to be playing regularly. And like I said, I think Villa would be a, a great move for them. Um, Chelsea have identified Erling Haaland, Romelu Lukaku and Sergio Aguero as potential targets. Uh, it's a bizarre mix. I mean, I, you know, if you can't get Haaland, I get why you'd want Lukaku. It's similar style of, of player. But how Aguero would get into that mix, I have no idea. Uh, I think Haaland stays at Dortmund. I think Lukaku stays at Inter. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? They adore him there. He's just won the title with them. He seems to be happier than he's ever been in his career. So I think he'd be mad to leave. Uh, yeah, Wickham are considering f- uh, legal action over Derby's financial situation. In a development that will raise a question mark over Derby's place in the Premiership next season, Wickham, who finished oh, Wickham, who finished one point in one place below Wayne Rooney's team, because Wickham won on the last day of the season to vault themselves up. Um, so, yeah, so it's Wickham who, would fa- who, who are putting in the legal action. Wickham would be the team to stay in the league if, if Derby get a points deduction. It'll be Wickham that stay up. Wickham beat Borough 3-0 at the weekend. Uh, good result there for Neil Warnock. Um, I think you have to say fair is fair. Derby did violate financial fair play. There should be a penalty for it. We've already seen Sheffield United, or Sheffield Wednesday rather, going down because they got a six-point deduction. So I suppose it is the, the fairest thing would be to give them uh, a points deduction. So Derby were charged into, in January 2020 with two breaches of the EFL's FFP rules. The first was that they had exceeded the 39 million limit 
for allowable losses over a three-year period. This allegation hinged on the £81 million sale of Pride Park to a company set up by Mel Morris in 2018. Now, you are allowed to sell your stadium once to the owner as long as he sets up another company. The issue with Derby was that they inflated the value of Pride Park. And the argument against it is there's no way Pride Park is worth £81 million. Now, I would say Pride Park is worth whatever Derby say it's worth because it's their asset when they're selling it. In the same way that a footballer is worth what the selling club wants him to be worth. There's no set value on these things. Now, you can argue that the land that it sits on is not worth that kind of money, but it's not development land. It is a physical structure. Um, the second charge related to how the club was recording the value of its players, an accountancy practice known as amortization. The league claimed the club changed its method from the industry standard in 2015 to one that gave it more control over its annual amortization costs. The club did not inform the league of this change. The charges were heard by a three-man panel last summer, and in August it was revealed that Derby had been cleared on the first charge and only mildly rep- reprimanded for not being entirely clear with the league about their amortization method. The EFL, however, appealed against the amortization part of the verdict in September, eight months later, and it does appear that they have lost... Oh, sorry, the EFL have won that appeal. So, I don't know. I, I think this story is going to run and run. I think there's going to be quite a bit more to be heard from this. Wigan, Wigan should fight... Oh, Wigan. Wickham should fight their corner. Wickham, if they've... Stuck by all the rules, Wickham should absolutely fight their corner. Derby cheated. Simple as that. You broke the rules, you cheated, you faced the punishment. Sheffield, you know, Sheffield Wednesday faced the punishment. They went down as a result. Doesn't seem fair that Derby would get away with it. Um, Mark Weehy, the young centre-back, has extended his contract with Chelsea. Um, it's a 12-month optional extension. So he has next season and now the season after on his contract. He has been on loan at Swansea the last two seasons, and he has been excellent. He is a tremendous young defender. Now, there's been some talk that he could be sold. The price on that, I'm not sure what it will be. Probably somewhere in the region of 15 million. He is a very, very talented player. And you'd imagine there'll be Premier League clubs who will queue up to get him. Uh, I think Chelsea, if they're smart, will hang on to him. I also think they should be looking to hang on to Fakayo Tamori. If AC Milan are not willing to spend the £28 million, why on earth would Chelsea let him leave? Seems ridiculous that you have these two great young defenders and you wouldn't give them the opportunity to show what they can do. You play a back three, it's perfectly suited to both of them. Um, Crystal Palace are among the teams linked along with West Ham and Newcastle. Yeah, I mean, he'd be he'd be an ideal fit for either. You know, he really would be an ideal fit for any, any of the three, to be fair. He can play in a two or a three, so that'll suit Moyes. Newcastle, it all depends on who the manager is. But Crystal Palace need to rebuild. They need to get younger at centre-back. They need to get a little bit more, I suppose a little less injury-prone at centre-back is, is the best way to put it. But, all things considered, he you know he could be part of their rebuild. 
depending on who the manager is. I wanted to... I was, I was going to try and avoid talking about this, but he's been arrested, so I do want to talk about it. Ollie McBurney has been arrested after an altercation with a fan where the fan says something to McBurney. The first video that came out, the fan says something, kind of says his name in a mocking way. McBurney walks up, knocks the phone out of his hand, stamps on the phone, and then appears to knee the person in the midriff and then throw a few slaps at him. Um, a second video has come out though. It's the same guy mocking McBurney and he, he's abusive in how he speaks to him. He swears at him a, a number of times. McBurney is, I believe out with his, his partner for lunch or whatever that they're, they're doing. And he is abusive repeatedly to McBurney. McBurney walks forward, kind of slaps at the phone. And then that video ends I'm assuming then they see each other a little bit later or it could be, you know, five minutes later, whatever. And McBurney's just had enough. While I don't agree with McBurney giving whoever this guy is a few digs, I don't disagree with it either. You can't just stand in the street and verbally abuse somebody and expect not to pay any consequences for it. Like, we put footballers up on pedestals, but we shouldn't. Like they're just they're just fellas who have jobs. It's just that their job earns them an awful lot of money, but they're no different to anybody else. If you or I were in the street and somebody started verbally abusing us from a distance, we would confront them. We may well throw a few slaps at them. It's not always the right thing to do, but it's not always the wrong thing to do either. Because sometimes people just need to be put back into their box. So I don't... I don't criticize Ollie McBurney for his actions. Because I don't imagine it's the first time he's faced abuse like this. And even on social media, you know, some of the jokes about him, oh, it's the most times he's hit the target all season. Yeah, grand, whatever. You want to criticize him as a football player? That's fine. You want to tell him you think he's had a bad season? Again, fine. Not ideal, but fine. I think we should be able to criticize football players. I don't think you need to criticize them to their face. I don't think, you, like, when you're criticizing them on social media, I always think if you tag them into criticism, you've just been a, a bit of an arse. You certainly don't abuse them like that. Not Not to their face, not anywhere. Like, it's just horrendous. We've been pushing to stop online abuse and has just brought it into the into the realm of face-to-face communication. I think what McBurney did, he slightly crossed the line, but I, I have to sympathize with him because I know I'd have done the same thing. I think most of us would do the same thing, especially in the circumstance. Like, he knows he's had a bad season. He knows that he's, his club's been relegated. It matters to him. Believe me, it matters to him. And people that say, oh, he won't care. He'll still get his wages. Yeah, he'll probably get a lot less wages, though. You'd imagine Sheffield United were smart enough to put relegation triggers in all the contracts for the players' wages likely cut in half to drop into the championship. So... 
he's still going to be earning comfortable money, don't get me wrong, but he knows he knows how bad they were. He knows that he's let them down this season. He's had a stinker of a year. He knows that. Don't worry about that. Don't abuse him. Don't abuse him. He didn't deserve to be abused. The fellow who got the slaps deserved the slaps. That's that's the be-all and end-all of it. He deserved a few slaps. It wasn't like he got badly beaten. He got a couple of digs. Hopefully it'll teach him a bit of a lesson. He thought he was being funny. He thought he was the big man. And then he was crying at the end of it because someone stood up to him. That's what you do with bullies. Stand up to them. Most of them will back down. Those that don't give them a slap in the mouth, and then they will. Simple as that. Uh, QPR could lose Elias Chair in the summer transfer window. Apparently, he is going to have offers from all over Europe, and I would imagine a couple of Premier League teams. Talented player. Crystal uh, QPR, unfortunately, just they're on a road to nowhere at the moment. I mean, they're they're just drifting through seasons in the championship. They lost Ezzy, who was the kind of the once in the gener- once in a generation talent they produced. Bright Isaiah Samuel, he went to Fenerbahce, having come through there as well. Uh, well, sorry, they, he came through at Blackpool. They bought him, but he was a super talent. Um. Yeah, really, really talented player. He's gone, like I say, as he and, and now this kid. So that's it's disappointing for QPR. They're going to get a decent sum for him, but will it be reinvested? I, I have I have doubts. Uh, I mentioned earlier that about the England squad. Um, Alan Shearer has put together his suggested 26-man squad for England at the Euros. So I wanted to run through it quickly because I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, He went with Pickford, Henderson, and Pope as the goalkeepers. Now, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I'm not a fan at all of Jordan Pickford. But uh, without question, Gareth Southgate is going to pick him. No question, Southgate is going to pick him. Um, And unfortunately, the two Southampton goalkeepers, they've kind of cancelled each other out this season, Forster and McCarthy. Neither of them has established themselves as the number one. If McCarthy had continued playing the way he was up until January, I think he should be going ahead of Pickford, but he hasn't. He's been bad the second half of the season. So I think it is fair that Pickford would be the choice, purely based on lack of other other numbers. But Dean Henderson, for me, now Manchester United's number one, should go to the Euros as England's number one. Nick Pope is number two, Pickford is number three. In defence, he went with Reese James, I don't have a real problem with that. He picked Trent Alexander-Arnold. Absolutely right. Should, without question, be the starting right back for England. Um, He picked Kyle Walker. Now, I don't know why you'd take three right backs, unless you're factoring Walker in as a potential centre-back in a back three, in which case, fine. He's had a decent season. Don't really have a problem with that. Luke Shaw and Ben Chilwell, yeah, fine. Although he says both Shaw and Chilwell have enjoyed exceptional seasons for their clubs. Chilwell hasn't been able to maintain the starting spot for Chelsea. Alonso has played just as much as him under Tuchel. 
So I don't think I don't think exceptional is an accurate reflection of Ben Chilwell's season. Luke Shaw, I would say, has had an exceptional season. Chilwell has had a good season. Far from exceptional. He then goes with John Stones. No problem there. He's had a good season for City. Not as good as some people have made it out to be, but he has been good. Best season he's had at City, without question. Uh, Harry Maguire. Now he says they're the automatic picks. Fair. Fair. They're going to both going to be in the squad. Maguire is going to be in the team because Southgate loves them. Then he picks Tyron Mings and Michael Keane. Which makes me wonder how much football he watches. Because if you've watched Everton this season and you've come to the conclusion that Michael Keane is more deserving of a spot in the England squad than Ben Godfrey, probably not the right sport for you. Keane's had a decent season. He's made a lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes. Godfrey hasn't played all season in centre-back. He's played at right-back. He's played left-back. He's played in defensive midfield. But he's played better than Michael Keane. Ben Godfrey should be in the England squad ahead of Michael Keane. Tyron Mings has no spot in the England squad. He has been dreadful this season. Dreadful. Esri Konza has just completely outplayed him, has carried him up and down the pitch all season long. Now, he said himself, I'd take Mings as well as Everton's Michael Keane, but I'd be lying if I said I was full of confidence here. If you're not confident in them, why would you bring them? Why would you bring them? You can bring Godfrey. You can bring Con- you should be bringing Konza anyway because he's been England's best centre back this season. You could bring Tamori. You're not. You don't have to pick between Mings, Keane, and Eric Dyer, or Connor Cody, all of whom have been. Keane's been okay. The other three have been dreadful this season. But Tamori's been really good for AC Milan. They've benched their captain to have him in the team. Cons has been one of the two best centre-backs in the league this season. And Godfrey's been really good for Everton. None of them get a mention in Mr. Shearer's column. In centre midfield, he goes Declan Rice, Jordan Henderson, Jude Bellingham, Calvin Phillips. No real problem with that. But Rice won't have played in a couple of months. Henderson won't have played in a couple of months. You're really going to risk it with just four midfielders? He says that if either of the pair can't make it, I'd bring in James Ward-Prowse for his delivery and set pieces. Right, what about all-round play? No? Now, I know Mason Mount could slot back into central midfield. But at the same time, it's a risk to only bring four central midfielders. You're bringing 10 defenders and four central midfielders. Two of whom won't have played in months. Bizarre. He then picks 10 attackers. So the, un, the the imbalance in his squad is ridiculous. But he goes 
Mason Mount, fine. And again, Mason Mount can be counted as a midfielder, so that's fine. Jack Grealish, who hasn't kicked a ball in three months and was bad the month before that. Now, based on talent and how well he played the first 15, 16 games of the season, fine. But Grealish... I mean, does he deserve to be an over... Like, is he going to get a game over Foden? He's, so he's got Foden, Saka, Kane, Calvert-Lewin, Sancho, Rashford, Sterling, and Greenwood. Now, what we know of Southgate is that he likes to play 3-4-3. Three, three. He may also try 4-3-3. Three, three. But if he goes 3-4-3, three, three, you'd imagine it's going to be Walker, Maguire, Stones as a back three. Trent and Luke Shaw maybe as the full as the wing backs. Henderson and Rice in the center. Pickford and goal. Which means there's three spots up for grabs. Harry Kane is taking one of them. Raheem Sterling is taking one of them. Are you really going to pick Jack Grealish over Jaden Sancho or Marcus Rashford? I don't think you are. I really don't think you are. So are you just bringing Jack Grealish to pad out the squad? Because if you are, you'd be better off taking a midfielder. You'd be much better off bringing a midfielder who can actually contribute, who'll more likely play than Jack Grealish. And it's harsh on Grealish, I know, because he, he was very, very good for the first couple of months of the season. But then he was poor and then he was hurt. And you're already bringing two players that are coming back off bad enough injuries in Rice and Henderson. Now you've got three in your squad. And I get that you've got 26 players this year, so you can have a little bit of cushion, but at the same time, I just, I don't really see the argument for it, for bringing Grealish. Like the way England play, I just don't think he suits it. If you're going to play Grealish for England, I think you need to go 4-2-3-1. Play him as the 10. Sancho and Sterling wide. Kane as your as your 9. But if you're playing that shape, shouldn't Phil Foden be your 10? He's the Phil Foden is is one of the the foundation pieces of England's future along with Sancho, Saka, Greenwood. I don't have a problem with any of the picks individually. I just don't know that there's real logic in bringing Grealish when you could just bring another midfielder, which is, would be more beneficial to you, which you've left yourself short of. Mount deserves it. He's been young player of the year, like I said yesterday. Foden is exceptional. Saka is exceptional. Saka also covers three different positions. Kane is a no-brainer. I think Calvert-Lewin, based on the season he's had, deserving. Sancho's a no-brainer, Rashford's a no-brainer, Sterling is a no-brainer. And I think Greenwood, the way he's played the second half of the season, the form he's in, the talent he has, his ability to get you a goal, I can see why you'd bring him. He mentions that he he left out Ollie Watkins. and You know, Ollie Watkins has been good for Villa this season. And if he was called up, it would be deserved, I think. But there are others more deserving. And Patrick Bamford will be the one for me. I think Bamford... I would have Bamford in the squad ahead of Grealish. And I know Grealish is a much more talented player. But Bamford is fit every single game. 
Bamford works incredibly hard for the team. Bamford doesn't need the team run through him. Grealish does. And the problem with Jack Grealish, when you put him in the England setup, is the team's not going to run through him. Because England don't play that way. England are not going to funnel everything through Jack Grealish. So he becomes a peripheral player. We're yet to see evidence that Jack Grealish aids winning when he's not the focus of everything. Yet to see it. So I, I wouldn't bring Grealish, if I'm honest. On talent, no question. But for squad balance, for how you're going to play, I just don't think Grealish makes sense. I think he'll end up sitting on the bench, not playing. And if you've got a player who's going to sit on the bench and not play, why is he there? Tottenham are to introduce a club advisory panel, which will allow supporters to sit in on board meetings. Uh, they have said they wholeheartedly regret the decision to join the Super League. This is nonsense. They don't regret it at all. They don't regret it at all. None of the clubs regret the decision. Because if they hadn't made the decision, they would have been left behind if it had gone ahead. <clears throat> I really like the idea of this uh, supervisory, uh, sorry, club advisory panel. This is something I have actually floated myself. I think... For Liverpool, rather than for Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, United, Chelsea, the lot, rather than put fans on the board where they can't really have an input because A, they're not going to be involved in the big votes. B, how would they take the votes? Are they going to go back and seek the counsel of the people they're there to represent, in which case the club's business gets broadcast all over the world? See how long are the terms going to be that someone sits on the board for? Are we going to have elections every year? That gets very, very messy. Seems pointless to me. I think putting in place a supervisory panel based on certain principles where they can oversee not all of the clubs running, but Certain aspects of it, in particular those relating to supporters. So ticket prices, match day experience, helping arrange travel and such to away away games, fan interaction, maintaining links to the community, community outreach projects, you know, helping with the food banks, whatever it may be, charitable endeavors, that kind of panel. For Liverpool, I would say. I would have Kenny Dogleash, Roy Evans, people that care about the club. Kenny, Roy Evans, Tony Barrett, already employed by the club, could be the one to sit as the head of this, um, this panel and chair the meetings. So there's three. I would suggest Margaret Aspinall. I think she'd be exceptionally good on this. Somebody from the Hillsborough Justice com uh, Committee campaign, sorry, Hillsborough Justice campa campaign. That'd be five. You get uh, Margaret Aspinall and someone, someone from the HJC. That'd be five. And then you have 
say four or say four more seat, seats. So say you give two to representatives of Spirit of Shankly, one to the spy on cop guys that do the flags and the displays on the cop, and then one to another group of fans, whoever that group is. Then you've got a nine-man com committee, headed or nine-person committee, I should say, headed by Tony Barrett, who's just there to chair it. And these people can oversee fans' interests because Kenny is a fan of the club. Roy Evans is a fan of the club. Margaret Aspinall is a fan of the club. Barrett is a fan of the club. And obviously the members and representatives of SOS, Spy on Cop, and whatever that other group would be. And it could be more. You can extend it to 11 if you want to get more groups involved, whatever. I would give Spirit of Shankly two seats on it because they are the biggest group of supporters. or the, the, They represent the biggest group of supporters. I think that can work. And I think that can have a real impact. I think that's a group that can meet six times a year, discuss things that are important to the fans, things that affect the fans, not shirt sponsorships and all that other type of stuff, but things that are real for the fans. You could have an input on pricing of shirts. That might help. Um, but I think something like that would have more of an impact than token representation at, at normal board meetings. Now you could have say Kenny is at board meetings Tony Barrett could sit in on board meetings and maybe one other person from this group. So you'd have three of them at the board meeting presenting what's come from the board or maybe it's just Tony Barrett and Kenny who present what's been put forward by the supervisory committee to the full board and then they can go from there. I think that will have more of an effect than somebody just sitting in on board meetings because they they're not going to discuss anything of of real note in front of someone that you know that they haven't appointed by choice, someone that's been forced on them. They're not going to talk about anything in front of them. It's foolish to think they would. Um, I think something like this, a supervisory committee, call it what you want. I think that would have much more of an impact on on the day-to-day -day running of a football club. Now, I've just given, obviously, examples for Liverpool, but the same, I think, can be true of any other club. Get a couple of ex-players involved, or manager, or an ex-manager, whoever, somebody that with real close ties to the club. Roy Evans, you won't find anyone with closer ties to the club. Man gave his life to the football club. Um, Kenny's given his life to the football club. I don't think anyone would dispute Tony Barrett's uh, care of the club. Margaret Aspinall the same. And, they, and, these, and these are people that are respected in the community as well. These are people with ties to the city. So therefore, they see it more as a community asset. And they'll be more in tune with what local people will want, especially people like Margaret. Margaret will be more in tune with, with what local people want and what affects them. Uh, what areas of the city maybe are struggling that the club can reach out to and help. You know, programs with schools programs with the homeless, whatever it is, this board can oversee that. This board can have an input and have an effect on Liverpool giving back to the community rather than taking and taking and taking, as they have been guilty of in the past. And the same is true of every other club. Every other club that's reached that, that kind of level, they've taken too much from the community and not given enough back. It's time to start giving back. This can be a first step towards that.
We'll wrap up with the gossip. Arsenal are considering a move for French striker Moussa Dembele. He's currently on loan at Atletico Madrid from Lyon. His move to Atletico did not work for him. Uh, he hasn't become a favourite of Diego Simeone, which means that you're basically the scum on the bottom of his shoe. So he may well be available. Now, Alex Lacazette is out of contract next summer. He turns 30 this year. You do not want to give him a new contract. You've already got bad contracts for Willian Aubameyang. You don't want a third one for him just off the back of the Ozil debacle. Sell Lacazette this summer and bring in someone like Amusa Dembele. You'll probably get the same money for Lacazette as you would pay for him. He's five years young, six years younger. He may not be as good, but he definitely has a lot of potential. He's a very talented player. And what you need is a real poacher and a real goal scorer, and that's what he is. So when you get him in the box and you've got Saka, Smith-Rowe, and whoever in the line of three behind him, if it's Aubameyang, fine. If it's somebody else like Nicolas Pepe, fine. But that is what you need in the box. He could be a really good addition. Chelsea are to offer Thomas Tuchel a new three-year deal at the end of the season. This was always going to happen. 18-1 contract when he joined, but it was quite, excuse me, it was quite clear if he does well, they're going to extend it. He's done really well, of course, they'll extend it. Barcelona are interested in swapping Miralem Pjanic for Jorginho. I would take that deal in a heartbeat if I was Chelsea, but Pjanic's wages are bananas. As a player, he's a much better player than Jorginho. Is he the best fit for Tuchel? Probably not. He's a better player. But you're going to end up inheriting... He's going to come in on a bad contract. He's going to want three to four years. He's 31. If it was a, a thing where you could get him on a two-year deal, fine. But no, I'd just pass on that and I'd sell Jorginho. Barcelona have finally reached an agreement with Manchester City to sign Spain defender Eric Garcia on a free transfer. They don't need to reach any agreement with Manchester City that is what's called nonsense. Uh, Manchester United remain in hot pursuit of hot pursuit, not just pursuit, but hot pursuit of England and Tottenham striker Harry Kane. Uh, he won't be hard to run down. He's got bad ankles, so, you know, just get in the car, you'll probably catch him. Inter Milan and Lazio are targeting Chelsea and France striker Olivier Giroud. Giroud will have a whole bunch of teams interested. A whole bunch of teams. They're not clubs he should go to if he wants to start, though. Because he's not starting for either of those clubs. Lazio play one up front. They've got Chiro Mobile. Inter play two. They've got Lukaku and Arturo Martinez. Go somewhere you're going to start. You'd be better off. Um, Southampton boss Ralph, Ralph Hasenhutl is positive the club can, can keep Danny Ings, who has a year left on his contract. I think it's the perfect place for Ings. And if I was him... I would be looking to stay. I, you're, the, you're the guy there. You're not going to be the guy somewhere else. Stay there. Keep banging in goals. They will absolutely adore you. And if you were to ever win silverware, they'll probably build you a statue. Sheffield United and Norway midfielder has a release clause of £35 million and not the £12 million that some reports have mentioned. So it has been reported that his buyout is £12 million because they were relegated. Now, this is the Yorkshire Live coming out and saying, no, that's not quite true. I would suggest that this might be Sheffield United wanting to put teams off the fact or off the scent of the fact that there is 12 million because one of the reports I saw said that it was his agent that leaked that it was 12 million. So who knows? Manchester United boss Jose Mourinho hopes to be reunited with Sergio Romero when he takes over as Roma boss. Roma do need a goalkeeper, but that ain't it. 
AC Milan are interested in Ivory Coast and Tottenham defender Serge Aurier. They've been chasing him for a couple of years now. I think Spurs would be, it'd be about the right time to, to move off him, let him go somewhere else. Real Madrid are also believed to be interested in Aurier. Let me put that one to bed. Doubtful. Doubtful. Why would they want him? Why would Real Madrid want him? He's not good enough for Tottenham. He's not good enough for Tottenham. Why would Real Madrid want him? Uh, Leeds have been have told Liverpool to forget about signing Patrick Bamford. Liverpool were never interested in Patrick Bamford. That was just nonsense made up by the star. Just so they could write a follow-up story saying Leeds had told them to forget about it and sell some newspapers. Southampton and England left-back is a, uh, Ryan Bertrand is a target for Arsenal, AC Milan and Monaco. He would be a backup for Arsenal behind Kieran Tierney, a backup for Milan behind uh, Theo Hernandez. I don't know about Monaco. Don't read, who is Monaco's left back? Oh, they've got that young kid. Um, I can't think of his name. If he wants to play, he should probably stay where he is. If he wants to go and win medals, well, he probably shouldn't join any of those teams, but they'd all pay him very well. Southampton and Leeds are interested in signing Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who spent the season on loan at West Brom. He can play centre-back, a centre-midfield or right-back. He'd make sense for either, to be fair. Southampton need a backup right-back and a body in midfield. He can fill both of those. I don't know if he'd be a starter for, for them, though. I don't think he's a better right-back than Walker-Peters. I don't think he's a better centre-midfielder than Ward-Prowse or Romeo or uh, Diallo. But I think for Leeds, he could be a starter. And I think he's the perfect Leeds player. Can play a bunch of different positions. Energy for days. Powerful runner from midfield. Good on the ball. I think he'd be a great signing for Leeds. However, I think Arsenal will be mental to let him go. Mental. Arsenal, or sorry, Everton will allow Theo Walcott to leave uh, this summer. He is out of contract. So they're not allowing him to leave. He is just leaving. It's, it's a non-story. He's just leaving. His contract is up. So not not allowing him to leave. He just doesn't want to stay. Um, Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta has played down speculation linking the club with a move for former Gunners goalkeeper Vucek Szczesny, the 31-year-old rather, is currently at Juventus and Juventus apparently want to move on from him. Now there has been rumours and there is a report in The Athletic that uh, David Luiz, Willian, Bernard Leno and Granit Xhaka and Hector Bellerin all want to leave the club. So with Leno going, there will be a need for a new goalkeeper, and obviously their backup goalkeepers are Matt Ryan, who they don't own. He's uh, he's in on loan from Brighton, and runner Alex Runnerson, who might be the worst goalkeeper I've ever seen play for a team like Arsenal. Um, so they will need a senior goalkeeper, but um, um, Chesney's not. No, just leave him where he is. You can, it's going to cost too much. His wages will be too high. He's thirty-one, and he's not all that good. Uh, but on the plus side for ever, for Arsenal. All those five, letting them go would be great. Louise goes in the free, you save a bunch of money. If you can find anyone to take Willian, you save a bunch of money. You'll get a good fee for Leno, and you'll save wages, because you'll get a better goalkeeper and on less wages. Uh, you'll get a good fee for Xhaka, and he's terrible. And you'll get a decent fee for Hector Bellerin, and they're all on big money, and you can get better players for less on the continent. All of them going would be great. That's how you start your rebuild. Clear out all the dross. Clear out all the dross. Bring back Winduzi. Bring bring back Torreira. Bring back Willock. Bring back Mavroponos. 
bring back Maitland-Niles, bring back Saliba, put them into your squad. Arsenal don't need much. They definitely don't need Chesney, though. Whatever, they need need a couple of goalkeepers, but they don't need Chesney. Uh, we'll leave it at that for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle, and thank you to Fox Hunt. I'll see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.